the Shy Chat Podcast. Stories that connect. Hello, loyal listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Shy Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Raimholt. And although I enjoyed the opportunity to be on the other side of the microphone last episode, I'm glad to be back as your host to help share another interesting story. As we near the end of August, I hope all of you have been able to get out and safely enjoy the beautiful Chicago weather. My wife and I have been taking some nice long walks along the lakefront, and I've gotten out on the course a few more times this summer than in the past years, although I'm not sure you'd be able to tell by my round last Sunday. From Rock Chalk Jayhawk to greeting colleagues with Sawadi Ka during her time in Thailand, Amanda Spikes, the firm's Economic Sanctions and Export Control Officer and Managing Director in Risk Management, has had quite a global journey since she joined KPMG's Trade and Customs Practice in Chicago shortly after law school. She describes her time working for KPMG in Thailand by sharing stories of her travels around Southeast Asia and how she developed technical skills during her tenure there that would lead her to where she is today. She also recounts the opportunity to represent KPMG in the Emerging Leaders Program with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, an organization whose objective is to provide insight on current global issues and why they matter. Well, hey, Amanda, welcome to the show. Uh, before we get started, uh, how are you adjusting to a remote way of working? You know, adjusting has not been too difficult. I worked from home, you know, one or two days a week prior to COVID, um, though I really do miss the, the social aspect of being in the office and, and seeing my coworkers and friends. Um, I really don't, I don't mind so much working from home. It's nice not to have to commute and I have my setup now going with my desk and a printer when I need it and all of those things. Um, but I will say, I think, um, you know, it's, I, I live by myself, um, and I live with my puppy and, um, that's all great, but I do think it's a little harder to um, modulate your mood um, when you're isolated yeah, so yeah. much. So I find that I'm a lot quicker to get sad or mad or find poignant moments and things um, during this time. Yeah, that, I think that makes sense. That resonates with a lot of us. Uh, is that puppy a new quarantine companion? No, it was very fortuitous. I actually got him the day after Thanksgiving. Um, he was about, he was, I don't think he was even eight weeks old um, when I got him. Um, so he was a little older than some of the quarantine puppies, but there were definitely a few months in there that socialization would have been key where we really just had to stay as far away from people and other pets as yeah. we could when we were out for walks. So um we still kind of do that, though I, I think we're a little bit uh, less concerned about um, six. My, my leash is six feet long, and I think other people's leashes are six feet long, so we usually <laughs> our, our puppies still talk to each other now. Um, well, now let's transition back to uh, the subject of the podcast being you. And I know you've got had a storied career here at KPMG, but can you first tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up? Sure. Um, I grew up in a small town in southwest Kansas. Um, it's called Hugoton, um, though I doubt that there's very, very many people that listen to this podcast who are going to ever heard of it. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, from there, I went to college at the University of Kansas, 
um, and I also stayed there for law school. So I was in Lawrence, Kansas for about seven or eight years, which was a really great place to spend my early 20s. Um, so then after that uh, experience in Kansas, how did you end up in Chicago? Um, that's a good question. I uh, ended law school not knowing where I was going to go. So I sort of thought about where I wanted to move, what just what city sounded really fun to me. I remember I looked at Chicago and San Francisco and New York, and to be honest, Chicago was the most affordable of those cities. So um, that's where I I took the Illinois bar a couple months before I moved up here, and then um, yeah, the bit I've been here uh, except for a couple years abroad. I've been here since two thousand and six. Well, that's great. And so now you mentioned going abroad. Uh, so obviously I'm going to have to ask about that. So where have you lived besides for Chicago? Um, so I did a two-year stint at our KPMG office in Thailand. Um, okay. My It started as a tax truck. If for those who are familiar with that program, it's sort of like a foreign exchange program that the firm has for the tax practice. Because um, at that time I was in the trading customs practice within tax. Um, and I had a great experience um, in my first few months there. Um, and the partner that I worked for asked if I would be willing to, to stay for a couple more years. Um, he came from Australia, and he was sort of running the indirect tax department, but had a lot of corporate tax background. And so he said he'd be willing to teach me some about corporate tax if I'd be willing to teach him some about trade and customs. So that was sort of the um, <laughs> exchange that we had. And it was great because, you know, Chicago's obviously a huge office. And just in the U.S. in general, I think people really have to specialize. Um, but in Thailand, it's a smaller office. And so people get to sort of get exposed to different types of work. And so while I was there, I was exposed to international tax and excise tax and um, VAT or GST tax, all sorts of things that I would not have had the exposure to if I had just stayed in the U.S. So how was the, you mentioned a smaller office, and I imagine there's going to be some cultural differences. How was adjusting to working in Thailand versus uh, in the U.S. and Chicago? You know, I actually think the adjustment to working in Thailand was probably easier than the adjustment when I came back from Thailand. You know, for the most part, it was a really, really positive experience. People are very welcoming there. Um, and so, um, you know, work life was, was fairly um, easy to adjust to. There were certainly issues with translation. Um, I Often my clients were U.S. companies or um, European companies, um, and so I was sort of trying to understand what the Thai regulations around customs or tax were saying and the implications of those, and then um, translate them back to our clients. And so there was always a lot of back and forth. And even when I could find a document that had been translated, a regulation, for example, from customs that had been translated, um, you really still couldn't totally rely on that. You really had to talk through it in detail with your colleagues to make sure everyone was on the same page um, as much as possible. So 
I think I really, really honed some communication skills there um, that I later used. I, I, when I came back to the U.S., I worked for a, a company that's headquartered in Germany, um, and I think those skills really helped. Um, but you know, there were there were some there were some funny things too. I, might, I remember a poster on the wall that was you know basically how to say no to an expat, um, as if you know. That's, we're not going to take no for an answer, um, yeah. and so I, I, that really that really stuck with me um, uh, while I was there. Just, you know, it was a very you know it's a different culture and a different way of communicating, and so I tried to be very cognizant of that. Yeah, it's got to be very interesting and completely different cultures. Um, so, and I, I, if you spent two years there, uh, I imagine you were able to take some fun personal trips. Uh, was there a trip that was most memorable to you uh, while you're over in Thailand? Definitely. Um, I, depending on where you live in the world and the name for it, I went to Burma or Myanmar, um, and it was a really incredible trip. It was probably six months or a year before Burma really opened up to the rest of the world. It had been very isolated. Um, and so I went there with a friend of mine and, um, you know, it was a place where there weren't any ATMs, so you had to be sure you had enough money that was going to cover you the whole time and you couldn't use credit <laughs> cards. And, um, I remember there were no street lights, um, so in, in certain cities that we were, so after dark, you know, it was just, you could see the stars and it was really very magical. Um, one of the places that probably... Uh, will stick with me forever is um, a place called Began, which um, is just this plains area that has just thousands of temples scattered all across it. Um, and so, you know, we, I think we just bicycled between different temples and, and looked at some of the bigger ones. And it was, it was really incredible, but it was also very apparent um, when I was there, the, the level of poverty. Um, so as exciting as it was, it was always sort of also met with some sadness because um, you could see the malnutrition in a lot of the people that you met. And um, and so, uh, yeah, it was just a very amazing and impactful trip for me. It's quite a unique insight, you know, before the company was, before the country opened up again, um, something that a lot of people probably not experienced. Uh, even even those in our office that have traveled a lot around the world have probably not uh, been able to see what you've seen there. Yeah, I mean, I would um, I would I would really love to go back and and see what has changed. I think you know there are considerations, of course, when you take those kind of trips and and to think about you know where your money is going and who it's supporting and does that align with your human rights beliefs, and so I think people have to really take those things into consideration, but um, I think what I learned from the trip um, has really helped um, sort of shape some of my viewpoints about that part of the world, and so I thought it was it was um, a really good opportunity. Are there any lessons learned or things that you picked up while you were traveling there that you'd like to share with the broader community? I, I mean, for one, I would say, you know, pick your travel companions well. I had a great travel companion for that <laughs> trip. Um, but I think, you know, who you're traveling with can make such an impact, right? You know, if if you're um, going to go with somebody who is not going <laughs> to sort of 
just roll with the punches, that's probably not the best script to take with that person. Um, yep. So, yeah, I guess that would be my, <laughs> my one piece of advice. Okay. Um, and then kind of uh, tailing, dovetailing off of that, um, you spent this time in Thailand. Is there anything that you learned specifically about the culture or the people that has been valuable for the rest of your career? Um, I think in general, um, learning how to communicate um, was key. But I also think I, I realized that your what you can see sometimes is so limited based on where you come from. So, you know, you go to Thailand, it's a wonderful place, people are very kind, um, you know, it, it has a reputation for being very hospitable. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's very much true, but there are so many more layers to society and culture that perhaps you wouldn't um, detect if you were, for example, you know, a girl from Kansas um, without really making good friends um, that are um, from there who can sort of point out some of these things. So, you know, hierarchical things about society and, um, you know, you know, uh, gender um, stereotypes and, and all those sorts of things that, that we, of course, have our, in our own society, um, but unless you have someone who can sort of explain those things, they're really hard to identify. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and then going off of that piece, you mentioned that it was actually harder to go back to the U.S. than when you came to Thailand. Can you talk about your transition back to the States? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things I loved about my time in Thailand and why I extended my time there um, in the first place was just how dynamic everything was. You know, there was tons of inbound investment, and you just had this feeling that there was sort of constant change and development around you, um, and I really enjoyed that. And, I, I, you know, there have certainly been other places that I've gone to where I have felt that way, but... Um, it just, everything felt very alive um, in Bangkok where I lived. Um, and when I came back to Chicago, um, it just, things felt um, much slower paced. And I was coming back and I, I was working for, like I said, a, a company headquartered in Germany. And I think um, the two communication styles are just so different um, that it was, much more of a culture shock for me coming back um, than, than going. Got it. Okay, so you were there as part of a KPMG tax track, but then you mentioned going to a company in Germany. Did you leave KPMG for a time? I did. So I when I, I went there, on, I went to Thailand on a tax track, and then I was a local hire for a couple of years, um, a local hire with our KPMG office for a couple of years. When I came back, mm -hmm. um, I came back and worked for um, a company headquartered in Germany, um, okay. but I was working in Chicago at the time. Okay, got it. And so then how did you make your way back to KPMG? Um, well, everybody loves a boomerang story, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, after I was um, at, at this, um, at this company, this German company, for a couple of years. Um, the partner that I used to work for reached out to me and asked if I would consider um, coming back. And, um, you know, I, I really liked my position, and I had, you know, some really great contacts at that point. 
Um, but I just saw so much more opportunity for growth and change within KPMG. Um, and so that's sort of what ultimately um, helped me decide that I would come back. And so I came back in um, 2014, and I worked in the trading customs practice until the end of 2018, um, and then took um, on my current role, um, which now I focus on export controls and sanctions for the firm. Um, so I'm, you know, looking at that from an internal perspective, um, and I've had that role now for two and a half years, a little over two and a half years. Okay, and that, that sounds very interesting to me. He said, like, export control from an internal perspective. So could you describe a little bit what you do day to day? Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the, the considerations that we have when we work with clients is what kind of information are they going to give us or what kind of information are we going to need in order to do our engagement. And, you know, very often that, that type of information does not include export control information. But sometimes there are engagements where we need it um, to do our work or engagements where the client would have difficulties um, segregating export controlled information from non-export controlled information that they give us. And so we have to put controls in place to handle that sort of information. And it's it's certainly not all types of information. It's It's really very technical information, tends to be proprietary information, things like blueprints, drawings, manufacturing processes, research and design work, that, that sort of information. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one consideration. Um, the firm also develops software and develops um, software code. And um, the encryption that can get incorporated into that or the encryption code um, related to that can also be export controlled. And so we review applications that the firm develops or procures to determine if there are export control implications. And then on the sanction side, um, sanctions have gotten quite a bit more complicated, I would say, in the last eight years or so. Eight years or so. Um, I think most people are familiar with the sanctions that the U.S. has on Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Syria, and the Crimea region of the Ukraine. Um, but there are also targeted sanctions, so sanctions that the U.S., the U.N., EU, and other governments put on individuals and entities um, because they are acting in a way that, say, the U.S. considers to be counter to our foreign policy or counter to democracy or counter to human rights. Um, and so... Uh, myself and Martha Bodyfeld, who helps in our our department, um, we're trying to help the firm uh, comply with those sanctions by screening our business partners against those sanctions lists to make sure we're not doing mm -hmm. something contrary with one of those um, parties that have been identified. Sure, and so it sounds like you ha your job is dependent on a lot of different geopolitical pressures. Um, do you foresee any changes with your job and what you're doing? based on a change in administration in this fall, potentially? Or how much does, like, the political administration affect what you guys do? Um, I think it can affect maybe the number of new individuals and entities that are sanctioned, and in rare case, maybe jurisdictions get sanctioned. Okay. 
But the framework, um, I don't think, would change with a new administration. I think the framework has been in place for quite a while now, and, and that's where um, the U.S., for the most part, um, will continue. Um, but, yeah, I think that there are maybe some different focuses that an administration would have, um, and so that might change a bit. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Um, and taking a little bit of a step back here, you've had a very interesting career. You've seen a lot of different things, lived in a lot of different parts of the world. Um, what is the most challenging part of your career? Yeah, I think um, regardless of what level or company that I have uh, worked for, it's doing the day-to-day -day work while still prioritizing some bigger picture things that you um, have in your goals or that you know will have an impact um, on your company. And so I think that it's easy to get sort of wrapped up in the day-to-day -day things and, oh, this engagement team needs this approval or, oh, this client is asking for this thing today. Um, but it's really important to keep that eye on um, some of the bigger strategic things that you want to do that are going to have a longer-term impact. And and so I certainly struggle with that. You know, I, I I'm came from client services, right? So I want to get back to people right away on things when they ask me. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the, the projects that I work on tend to take a backseat to that. Some of these bigger projects I work on tend to take a backseat. And so it's always trying to find that balance and prioritization. Yeah, that's something that I struggle with as well a lot. You always want to answer straight away, but it kind of affects your ability to get your actual work done and uh, I think it's a, it's a tough balancing act for anybody. Um, and then one other thing that I had, I had seen is that you were part of a quite an illustrious emerging leaders program as part of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Um, could you talk about how hearing from experts on international issues and growing your network has helped your career through that program? Yeah, um, I think uh, I think always learning from experts and growing your network is going to help your career. Um, I think this program, though, is probably uh, you know unique to my job has helped me. One of the major parts of that um, has been a focus that the program had this year on U.S.-China relations. Um, it was a topic that came up in so many different contexts and security and policy, just, you know, all sorts of different contexts with different mm -hmm. um, viewpoints from different experts. And I think that's really going to be helpful to me in the next couple of years. I think it's no surprise to people when I say that our relationship with China right now is, um, you know, not, it's not, not, not the best it's been. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of questions regarding trade and security, um, you know, 5G and uh, Hong Kong and all these things sort of happening at one time that make people a little bit uncertain about the future. And so I think hearing from as many experts as I've heard from, it does certainly doesn't help me to have a crystal ball to know what's going to happen. But it's, it helps me to be able to predict some worst-case scenarios so that we can be prepared as a firm from a sanctions or export control perspective um, should those things arise. 
That's fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like you have uh, a lot of interesting things in the next month, upcoming months and years, specifically with China and other uh, other organizations and other countries that we're working with here. So it sounds like you are going to be well-equipped to deal with those issues. I hope so, um, but I think it'll be important to keep listening to experts, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> nothing, nothing uh, especially when it comes to international politics, you know, is stagnant. So I think it'll be important to keep reaching out and hearing what uh, different people with different perspectives have to say. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, well, Amanda, I'd like to say thanks for coming on the show here. But before I let you go, we're going to do our lightning round, ask a few quick questions, and just see first thing that comes to mind. Uh, are you ready for that? I, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Uh, number one, what is the weird, weirdest food combination that you've ever tried? Probably candied beetles in Thailand. <laughs> that is. And, and were they any good? It wasn't bad. What's bad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure many people on the listen to the podcast and tried Beatles before, but that's a pretty good one. <laughs> um, all right. In the spirit of spending more time at home, uh, what is your least favorite chore? Oh, well, I'm in the middle of a move right now, so I would definitely say packing. Well, hard to argue that one. Uh, number three, if you could do anything illegal without getting caught, what would you do? I think I might have to plead the fifth on that, being in risk management. <laughs> That's a pretty good answer. Um, okay, number four. Uh, if you could, who would you swap lives with for a day? Maybe like a, like an influencer. I And I say that I have no real concept of what influencers do, but I think it would be fun to sort of you know, go to restaurants, assuming we could, um, <laughs> with COVID, um, yeah. and, and sort of have my opinion be something that really, really matters. Um, I, I think that might be fun for a day. So what is your dream job besides KPMG and professional services, of course? What would you do if you didn't have to worry about money or anything else? What would be your dream job? Oh, I would be an interior designer. I, I, I know that one. As, you know, that assumes I've also got the education to do it, but um, I, would love to, I would love to do that. Well, you mentioned packing, so I imagine your new house is going to be just exquisite if you got the, the, <laughs> uh, the, the eye for interior design. Ask me in a year. <laughs> I think it's going to take a little while. My wife and I just bought a new condo, so we might have to have you come over and take a look and provide some uh, areas for improvement. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Uh, well, thanks again for Amanda. Appreci appreciate you being a uh, good sport and answering our questions here. And we look forward to what's next in store for you. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed doing this. Thank you for listening to the Shy Chat Podcast with your host, Peter Raimel. For more information about Amanda's story or global mobility at KPMG, please contact Amanda Spikes at aspikes at kpmg.com. If you like what you heard, spread the word. And if you or someone you know has a great story that you think we should hear about, please contact Aaron Bailey at ebailey at kpmg.com or myself at pramholt at kpmg.com. <laughs>